0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Welcome to panel one of Justice Thomas's 30-year legacy on the court, safeguarding the structural constitution, federalism, and the separation of powers. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Heritage's Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies.
2: Well, welcome, everybody, uh, to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, on behalf of Heritage and the Gray Center uh, at the uh, at the Scalia Law School, we are delighted that you are here for this very important occasion. I would remind uh, people when they're here in the auditorium, please wear a mask. And also, we would very much appreciate it if you would check to silence your cell phones ahead of time. Uh, We are are so happy that you are here uh, to help us celebrate with this all-day symposium uh, the occasion of Justice Clarence Thomas's Uh, 30th anniversary of his uh, confirmation and appointment as an associate justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, I hope you will agree that we have an outstanding series of panels uh, exploring Justice Thomas's impact on the court uh, and on the law. Uh, We're going to get right to it. The moderator of our first panel is uh, John Yu. Uh, John is the um, Emanuel Heller professor at the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Uh, He is a prolific author and commentator. He served uh, as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel uh, at the Justice Department during the Bush administration, and he also clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman, whom we will be honoring uh, later today, and for Justice Thomas. And with that, John, I turn it over to you. Thank you, John. Uh, Thank
3: thank you everybody for uh, coming today. I'd like to thank uh, John Malcolm for putting me on the schedule at 8 30 in the morning after I flew from California. It's five thirty my time. <laughs> it always does this to me. This is the revenge of the Civil War reenactors upon us out in California. Also thank uh congratulate the Heritage Foundation for your new president. Uh, who was just announced this last week, and uh, you might have heard this very nice jazz music while we were coming in. I assume that's all going to be changed to uh, banjos (laughs) and other kind of Texas music for all the internal heritage music systems. And I also want to thank all the judges here who are participating. It was, uh, I was expecting when we were organizing this panel, that it would be extremely difficult, not having been a judge myself, never having sat in on a judicial conference, I expected them to make demands, yell, scream, but they were all so accommodating and cooperative. uh, This was not what I thought judges were like at all. (laughs) So this is, we've got a great uh, division of authority. Is this uh, a statement about Larry? (laughs) (laughs) I got Silverman later, (laughs) don't worry. Um, And so, uh, You all know who they are, I'll just introduce them all very quickly. And then I thought before we got to the substance of it, ask them to uh, share any uh, story or encounter with the justice that they had over their years on the bench. So uh, all the way on the far uh, left, Judge Tom Hardiman from the Third Circuit, my home state of Pennsylvania. Um, Next to him, Judge Naomi Rao. I call her Naomi because she's uh, younger than me. Uh, Judge Naomi Rao from the DC Circuit. Judge Heath Jones from the Fifth Circuit, and Judge Bill Pryor from the Eleventh Circuit. So, um, Bill, why don't you start? Do you have any, uh, before we talk about the substance, do you have any
0: story or? Yeah, so I I think the first time I spent uh, a meaningful amount of time uh, with the justice uh, was in a visit um, to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, to the University of Alabama Law School to give, the All-Britain Lecture. Harold all is a federal district judge in Alabama, and his, uh, he is just, I think, four or five generations of Alabama lawyers uh, from the All-Britain family. And they have a, a lecture series that almost every justice of the court has um, participated in. And the justice came down for that visit, and often they schedule it in conjunction with a football game. Uh, surprise, surprise. And uh, that weekend was the Alabama-Tennessee game. We we refer to that as the third Saturday in October. Uh, and it doesn't matter that this weekend is the fourth Saturday in October because Alabama and Tennessee are playing, so it's really the third Saturday in October. And um, the bad news is, you know, Justice Thomas is quite a fan of college football. I, he regaled us with stories the night before about his love of NASCAR. Uh, but but he he arrived in at Bryant Denny Stadium, and he's a Nebraska fan. For those of you who don't know it, um, and Nebraska had had, as they have been having now for quite a while, a tough morning. Uh, they had played the 11 o'clock game against Iowa State, and this was before Iowa State would be ranked. Uh, and Iowa State had beaten Nebraska, uh, and. I would say he was not in the best of moods when he arrived at the, um, at the stadium, uh, but it was remarkable to see his interaction with people at the stadium, um, uh, and particularly just restaurant, you know, cafe-type food work, service workers, um, but also members of the board of trustees of the university. And everyone wanted to meet Justice Thomas, have their photograph taken with Justice Thomas, uh, chat with him about the um about the day in the game. And he really loosened up um pretty quickly. This ended up being this was two thousand nine, this ended up being a really Close game. This was uh, Coach Nick Saban's first national champion season uh, at the University of Alabama, and an undefeated season was on the line. Lane Kiffin was the coach at Tennessee, and um, and it ended up coming down to a field goal on the last second that Alabama blocked. And by then, it was remarkable to see the Justice's transformation. Through the afternoon, he he really got into it. I mean, he was totally into this very close back and forth uh, game. And and when Alabama blocked the field goal to end the game, what is known in, back home as as Rocky Block, um, the the stadium erupted, and he, he was it was just pure joy uh, on his face. And he, he, this was you know to me the captures the real Clarence Thomas, you know, really, you know, in so many ways, such a regular, um, person, uh, genuinely warm, uh, person, um, who has a love of life. Um, and, and, uh, he, he was, he was so popular with so many, um, just regular Alabamians who were so honored, uh, to meet him and, and who he met, and made every one of them the center of his attention uh, as he met them. Uh, so it was a it was really a terrific beginning uh, to what has become a great friendship.
4: Good.
3: Having gone to college I didn't know football was played at the collegiate level. This is very interesting. <laughs> I don't
4: talk football anymore. Uh, well there's not much to say. Uh, after My father spent every weekend uh, glued to the football games and uh, he died before uh, Texas, before the Southwest Conference failed and therefore a year later there would have been no Texas versus Texas A&M Thanksgiving game and had he not died that would have killed him. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, that was the end of my interest in football. Uh, so I can't talk about that with Justice Thomas. Uh, I will be briefer than Bill, uh, because I think I met him when my law clerk, Greg Coleman, was one in one of his early classes of law clerks, and you all may know about Greg, um, and I came up to visit invited myself up to visit Greg and the justice ushered me into his office and we started talking and what is an introductory conversation with him often turns into at least 30 minutes. But in the ensuing years, we've had a number of those conversations and uh, I agree with Bill. Uh, The thing about Justice Thomas is what you see is what you get, and in fact, you could call his jurisprudence, the jurisprudence of what you what you see is what you get. Uh, I love him to death, I love Virginia. Uh, I love their stories about traveling around the country in their RV, where they stop often at a, a parking lot of a Walmart or a Home Depot or something, and there are a lot of other ple- people there in their own RVs, and nobody knows who he is. <laughs> which doesn't bother him in the slightest. One problem we have nowadays is sort of that uh, some judges would rather be personalities than judges and that does not characterize him. And I'll say one other thing. Uh, I had the privilege of attending Hillsdale College when they inaugurated their new chapel a couple of years ago and he gave the inaugural address. And if you're interested in gaining a real insight into the mind and soul of a man who believes deeply in God as well as in the Constitution and the American system. Uh, I urge you to read his inaugural address for, the, uh, for that chapel, thanks.
1: Great,
4: um, so I
1: first met Justice Thomas when I interviewed with him for a clerkship, um, unsuccessfully the first time. So that was the first, uh, first time I had the opportunity to meet Justice Thomas, but, but it all worked out in the end, in part because I was, uh, working in the U.S. Senate and saw the justice in the cafeteria, and, and eventually that led to a clerkship somehow. But, um, I don't know, I definitely don't have any football stories with the justice, but having been his clerk, um, Really, one of the the greatest privileges of my life to clerk for for such a man um, and such a jurist. He um, he has taught me so many lessons about not just the law, but about how to be a great person in the world. Watching him interact with his colleagues, but with the, everyone in the courthouse—from from the person in the cafeteria to the to the man rolling the books into chambers. Um, to the woman, you know running the elevator, because the Supreme Court still has people who run the elevators. Um, it's a real it's a real lesson in in humility and in life. So um, so for me, it's been one of the the most significant relationships I've had in the past twenty years.
3: And Naomi and I share that. We both interviewed with the justice and were not hired, but I did not stalk him in the Senate to get the job.
1: (laughs) I was just minding my own business, you know, eating a tuna fish sandwich or something.
5: Well, everything my colleagues have said about Justice Thomas being a regular guy is certainly true, and there are thousands of stories to that effect. And I have many from when he came to Pittsburgh, and I had the privilege of being one of his interlocutors at Duquesne University, but the story I want to share with you is is in the category of the things people never hear about Justice Thomas, and I think they've heard more and more about how he treats every human being with dignity and respect, but um, this was a very special trip that we took to Washington, actually, Judge Dick Leon was visiting Pittsburgh, and he was looking at some photos in my chambers, and he asked me about a particular photo. And I said, well, that's my little brother uh, through the Big Brothers Big Sisters program uh, that I've been involved with for many years in Pittsburgh. And uh, he said, oh, well, tell me about him. I said, well, one thing you'll like being a Holy Cross guy is he's a big fan of CT. He said, oh, really? I said, yeah, you think there's any chance I could get him an introduction? He said, let me work on that. So I got a phone call from Judge Leon, and a few weeks later, uh, my little brother and I were on our way in the car from Pittsburgh to uh, to D.C. We watched two oral arguments, and then uh, my little brother got an audience with someone he really admired whose autobiography he had read a couple of times. And of course, I assumed it was a five-minute photo op, shake hands, wonderful, good to see you, but no. He sat us down, and about an hour and twenty minutes later, he said, "Well, you know there's a Dean of a law school out there, and I was supposed to see her about fifty minutes ago. so <laughs> <laughs> so I think you guys better get moving." But it was one of the most extraordinary and and profound meetings I've ever seen, the way he got to know my little brother, the way he listened to him, the way he counseled him and advised him about uh, the challenges he would face growing up in this country. And, uh, it still, uh, really moves me to this day and, uh, respected the justice for many, many reasons, uh, but that
3: one's very high on the list. Thanks, Judge. Well, let's, uh, start on the substance of the program. So, instead of, uh, uh direct, uh, presentations, we discussed this and thought we would have more of a conversation. So, uh, each of the judges has agreed to cover a certain, uh, area of the justice's jurisprudence and... Um, I would just uh, introduce the cases so that they didn't have to and we could hear their thoughts and then hear what the other uh, panelists have to think about the justices' opinions in this area. So uh, maybe uh, uh, what we could talk about first is uh, Justice thompson's longest opinion. So that would be his dissent in U.S. term limits versus Thornton, a five to four case where the Supreme Court struck down state efforts to impose term limits on federal representatives to Congress. Uh, uh, Justice Stevens wrote the majority opinion and Justice Thomas wrote the, uh, lead dissent. Uh, Judge Jones, do you want to start off with that case? Yeah,
4: well, John, when John assigned this to me, uh, I hadn't read the case lately. Maybe I never read it at all because, frankly, I don't read some of the Supreme Court cases that I don't think I'm ever going to have to deal with because they're so darn long. Well, it turns out, it turns out, John giggles, uh, this is l- supposedly the longest opinion that Justice Thomas has written. So I kept reading and I kept reading and I kept reading. <laughs> of course, it's long because it's full of substance. And I am uh, borrowing a couple of my thoughts here from Professor Ralph Rossum of Claremont, who I met years and years ago at a judicial conference that uh, was later outlawed uh, called Understanding Clarence Thomas, he wrote a book, Understanding Clarence Thomas, the Jurisprudence of Original Meaning, uh, which is a very thorough rundown, but uh, the basic idea of uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in U.S. term limits is that the 10th Amendment, uh, which says that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by, by it to the states are reserved to the states or to the people, that the 10th Amendment um, uh, allowed, should have allowed the states to add certain additional qualifications for members of Congress. As you know, Artic- Article One says that the only qualification for Congress is that a person be at least 25 years old, a citizen of the United States for a period of time, and a resident, an an inhabitant of the state. And the question in the case was whether the people of Arkansas uh, validly enacted a state constitutional amendment uh, that said that if a person had been in congr- Congress more than, I think it was, three terms, uh, that if they wanted to stand again for that office, they had to do it by write-in ballot. In other words, it didn't really take them off the ballot. It said that the voters had to deliberately choose them. Um, five-four decision. Uh, Justice Stevens goes into uh, original meaning at great length. Uh, Justice Thomas goes into the original meaning of the Tenth Amendment at even greater length. I think the, uh, the, uh, principle, uh, he starts off with a textual ex- exposition of the Tenth Amendment. What does it mean to say that the people ratified the Constitution of the United States, uh, Justice Stevens's argument is predicated on well this is by the people you know ratified by the people and therefore these uh qualifications are um uh, exclusive to the constitution and may not be interfered with by the states justice thomas takes this on directly talking about the people of the states ratified it was people in the states that ratified and did not give away certain of their powers. As he puts it, the federal government and the states face different default rules where the Constitution is silent about the exercise of a particular power. That is, where it does not speak expressly or by necessary implication. The federal government lacks that power, and the states enjoy it. and then he goes on to talk about what are reserved powers. I could spend quite a long time summarizing his opinion for the sake of the discussion here. I won't do that, uh, but I will point out a few uh, things. First of all, he wrote this in 95. He had been on the court only four years. It is a tour de force about original meaning. Uh, Second, it is a very, very difficult argument from the standpoint of the dissent, uh, because one would think uh, offhand, surely, uh, when the Constitution states these qualifications, obviously, uh, those have got to be the only qualifications for representation in Congress. Third, he takes on Justice Story, one of my favorite uh, former justices of the Supreme Court, who said unequivocally these qualifications had to be exclusive. Um, uh, Fourth, he takes on the um, uh, idea that uh, uh, if you, uh, the idea behind what Justice Story said was if they're not exclusive, then states could undermine the very principle of representation in Congress, in two ways: either by setting qualifications so high that effectively they weren't participating in Congress because they couldn't elect many people, or by setting them so high that they were moving back toward an arist- aristocratic or oligarchic conception of the uh, of the office holding, which is what the framers, in part, were trying to avoid. So it is it's not the easiest argument to make. Uh, but I will say he does a magnificent job. He also has to take on the the language of the qualifications clause, the argument that, quote, democratic principles uh, lay behind this argument for exclusivity, and then uh, the weakest argument of the majority, which is historical evidence, because in fact, at the time of the framing, several states did have additional qualifications for uh, service in Congress, and in fact, if the qualifications stated in the Constitution are exclusive, then um, uh, a state can't bar a felon from serving in Congress. Not that that hasn't happened before, <laughs> but <laughs> they can't uh, literally prohibit it. So I would introduce this as uh, one of his earlier opinions, stating forth what Rossum calls a jurisprudence of original meaning, which takes on first the text, then the context, then the way in which the provision was uh, structured at the time of the framing in order to elucidate its meaning, and then the naive notion that, gee whiz, the the, the original meaning at the time of the Constitution is the way it should be applied today.
3: Any other comments or thoughts I just, I remember at the time people criticized the uh, Thomas opinion as perhaps being too anti-federalist. Uh, there was this idea, well, if Justice Thomas was right, does that mean states could instruct senators how to vote and, you know, l- you know, really take over, interfere with federal officials? What do you all think of that criticism
4: of the dissent or? I think there's something to be, well, this reminds this reminds me of, and I hate, this isn't about me, but I had uh, only one senator in the room when I had my confirmation hearing, and um, and that was Strom Thurmond, and he said, young lady, young, young lady. I was not controversial like so. <laughs> And, and and
3: some who didn't learn their lesson and continue to be so.
4: I don't, I don't speak ill of the dead when I say he, he asked me the question, young lady, what do you think is the role of the Tenth Amendment? And at that time, 1985, having litigated only a couple of constitutional law cases and an otherwise uh, career devoted to general litigation and bankruptcy law, I said, well, sir, the... Uh, Constitution uh, gave certain uh, powers to the federal government and whatever it didn't give to the federal government were retained by the states. He said, young lady, don't you really mean that uh, the states gave few powers to the federal government? (laughs) I said, oh, yes, sir, you're right about that. (laughs) And uh, I I do not think that that is the theme of, uh, of this. He, he, the only way in which I think you could fairly make the argument that uh, John is saying is uh, by somehow saying that the idea that the people acting in the states ratified the Constitution somehow means that you have, you know, overbearing, overweening state authority. And he, he, it's very amusing. He starts out the dissent by saying, it's ironic that the court bases today's decision on the right of the people to choose whom they please to govern them, when in fact this measure had been adopted by a state constitutional amendment. And later on, what is the other uh, case I was looking at? In the uh, voting rights? In one of these later, more recent cases where the voters, oh, it was the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, you have a five-member majority of the court saying, oh, well, uh, Arizona adopted this independent redistricting commission as a matter of a ballot initiative and therefore this is entitled to the highest deference. Uh, and the argument, you know, of the dissent was article one section four says legislative district, congressional district must be done by the legislature. So it was in flat contradiction to the constitution and Thomas in his uh, dissent says, well it's very ironic that they're talking about deference to ballot initiatives here when they're not paying any attention to them in things like term limits, abortion, uh, the sanctity of marriage and so on.
3: Judges, any concurrences or dissents? No? No. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next federalism topic with uh, Judge Hardiman, who agreed to talk about two cases, United States versus Lopez and Gonzalez versus Reich, uh, U.S. versus Lopez was about the conviction of a child who brought a gun to school in violation of the federal Gun-Free School Zones Act. Uh, at the time, of course, the New York Daily News, with its uh, usual scholarly acuity on the front page, said, case of pistol-packing peewee makes it to the Supreme Court. <laughs> and in that case, the court 5-4 to four, struck the law down as beyond the Commerce Clause. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence. And Gonzalez versus Reich is a 2005 case where uh, the court, I think to the surprise of some, upheld the uh, Controlled Substances Act in a case where uh, uh, one person grew marijuana at home, gave it to another person. Believe it or not, this case the facts of this case arose four blocks from my office in Berkeley, California. <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> uh, however, in that case, the court by a 6-3 to majority held that uh, the Commerce Clause could reach the gift of marijuana because in the aggregate, it had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Justice Thomas wrote a dissent. So uh, Judge Hartman? Sure, thanks, John. Uh, Like the case Judge
5: Jones presented, um, Lopez is, is we could say, early Justice Thomas, 1995. Um, And one observation I'll make, I think, is that I didn't notice it at the time, certainly, and uh, perhaps few did, that this was uh, a sign of the difference between Justice Scalia, who I think called himself a faint feint-hearted originalist, and Justice Thomas, who I think we could say is certainly a full-throated originalist. So here you've got uh, Justice uh, Scalia joining Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion. So he and Justice Thomas were on the same side in this case but Justice Thomas writes the concurrence, as, as John said, uh, and Justice Scalia doesn't join it. Uh, there were many other times where Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas wrote separately, and, and they may have joined, but here Justice Scalia doesn't join Justice Thomas's very textualist, very originalist concurrence, which is essentially um, a critique of the substantial effect uh, notion that Anything that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce is regulable under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And in that concurrence, Justice Thomas said that we've said that Congress may regulate only commerce among the several states, not only commerce among the several states, but also anything that has a substantial effect. This test, if taken to its logical extreme, would give Congress a police power over all aspects of American life. And that's a theme that he's returned to again and again, and he returns to it in his shorter um, separate um, dissent in Gonzalez versus Raich. He's expressing this concern that if we read um, the Commerce Clause power so broadly, as the court has read it since the New Deal cases, according to Justice Thomas, Um, It would give the federal government unlimited power, so right away he's staking out this this uh, structural concern uh, about the balance of powers between the federal government and the state governments. Um, One of the, uh, the quips that he makes in the Lopez case is that it seems to him that the power to regulate commerce can by no means encompass authority, over mere gun possession any more than it empowers the federal government to regulate marriage, littering, or (laughs) cruelty to animals throughout the 50 states. And again, it's consistent with that theme. Uh, Years later in Gonzales versus Raich, he talks about other uh, very local activities, including uh, quilting bees uh, and a couple of other um, very uh, local activities that everyone would say, well, what does this have to do with interstate commerce? And the image that came to mind as I was reading these cases again was sort of the, the uh, wings of a butterfly idea or the ripples in a pond. That's really what he's pushing back against here is the notion that if you take any one thing and aggregate it, it can result in a very serious effect. But that's not the way we should be looking at the Commerce Clause. Um, Interstate commerce is something that's qualitatively different, he also says. This is a very important uh, originalist point he makes. He goes back to founding-era dictionaries and the debates at the ratification, uh, during ratification among the states. And those debates indicate that the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists saw a distinction between commerce on the one hand and agriculture and manufacturing, on the other hand. And if Justice Thomas is right about that, then what does that say about Worker v. Filburn, for example? Um, So he makes this this distinction between um, transporting goods and selling goods, trading across state lines, which is right within the heartland of Article I, Section 8. Uh, And on the other side of the equation are agriculture manufacturing, producing things out of the ground or in the factory. And that's qualitatively different than commerce. It doesn't become commerce until it starts to get moved interstate. Um, so that's a very important sort of first principle uh, argument that he staked out very early in his jurisprudence. And it's it's certainly uh, continued consistently over his 30 years on the court. Um, and again, uh, uh, another important distinction in Gonzales v. Raich is Justice Scalia is now against Justice Thomas, right? So in Lopez, they're they're together on the result, but not together on the ratio. Uh, but in Gonzales, they're they're against one another. Um, and I've often wondered one of the questions that I would have wish I could have asked Justice Scalia in private was um, if if Raich had a couple of grapes in the backyard and was waking her own wine. Would you have come to the same result? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but Justice Thomas, uh, clearly this was a bridge too far for him. His, his dissent in, in rage is really not focused on um, Article One, Section 8. If you read his dissent, uh, which, which you really should, He only very briefly addresses that. He sort of gives it the back of the hand. He says, this obviously is not interstate commerce. He spends uh, the great majority of his dissent uh, engaging on the necessary and proper clause. So that's really where the battleground is there. He uh, explains why he disagrees. And Justice Scalia's separate concurrence in rage focuses on necessary and proper. So you've got a great debate between Justices Scalia and Thomas about how much work the necessary and proper clause can do in service of the Commerce Clause. So these are two really um, wonderful opinions that, that you could sort of keep coming back to um, and never, at least for me, never get tired of.
3: This brings a question to mind for all of you as uh, judges. What do you think about the, uh, Justice Thomas's approach to precedent? And neither of, these case, neither of these opinions really seem to pay much deference to the decisions of the past on the Commerce Clause. Does that make his opinion sort of these quixotic pleas to return to uh, the original understanding that really don't have much chance because they are so uh, sweepingly dismissive of precedent? Or do they really have an effect?
5: Well, one, one thing I did notice on that issue, John, is that Justice Thomas drops a footnote in Lopez, um, which is, I think, a response to the notion that he's trying to just upend the apple cart completely. What he's he's saying is we need to re-examine our Commerce Clause cases. Mm -hmm. And he he says something um, about, you know, what do you do with 60 years of jurisprudence? I'm not sure you just overturn it. And when I read that, in preparation for this, it seemed like something he wouldn't write now. But I think you know Judge Rao would have perhaps more insight having clerked for him on that, or, or you, John. But um, that's sort of um, step backwards. Um, and he mentioned stare decisis explicitly in the footnote. Um, his more recent opinions, I'd say the last 10 or 15 years, I'm not sure that's a step back that he would take these days.
0: You know, I I guess the the most significant opinion he's written on his uh, view of stare decisis um, was uh, pretty recent. Uh, And uh, to me, you know, (laughs) everyone says, well, Justice Thomas doesn't believe in in precedent. Uh, And it's not exactly right or fair. Um, he, He thinks his what we take an oath to uphold is the Constitution, and it's the Constitution that's the ultimate touchstone, and that's what matters first. Um, but if you want to look at a, a fairly recent example of where precedent makes a difference to the justice, uh, look at the Gamble um, decision. Uh, you know, and Justice Thomas had been one of the early skeptics of the notion that the double jeopardy um, prohibition would allow a state to prosecute uh, someone for an offense, have that individual acquitted, but then a separate sovereign, the federal government, could could uh, prosecute that same offender for essentially uh, the same conduct, uh, and and then the court decided to re-examine extremely. Uh, s- settled long-standing precedent uh, about just that and uh, at the end of the day the court stuck with its precedent uh, and there was justice Thomas in the majority I think it was seven to two with, with the uh, was the final vote uh, with justices Gorsuch and I think Ginsburg in dissent um and and um, Justice Thomas, you know, looked at it and said, you know, now that we've had that opportunity to examine this, um, there are good arguments on both sides, um, but but I can't say um, that this is demonstrably erroneous in the language that Caleb Nelson scholarship, you know, introduced to us all, and uh, and and he stuck with the precedent. So it's you know, I I, I think in in. Um, that's in keeping with the footnote that you, that you read, oh, Tom.
1: Um, um, I do think Justice Thomas's views have become perhaps a little bit less favorable to precedent over time. I mean, he says in Cielo Law, I think he says something, he says, we simply cannot compromise when it comes to our government's structure he says, in calling for overruling Humphrey's executor. Um, But I think his view, to to Judge Pryor's point, I think his view about precedent is is more nuanced than people often often think. Um, You know, precedent is often a source of collective wisdom over time, and I think Justice Thomas does not have so much hubris to think that in a few months he can always rethink the whole Constitution. And I think that is what's reflected maybe in some of those footnotes or other places in which he sort of suggests, you know, we need to think about the precedent, um, but what we always need to have fidelity to is the Constitution, which is of course what we as judges take an oath to uphold.
4: Yeah, I think you can see that he uh, takes most issues step by step over a period of years. and. A good example of that is his, uh, opinions in the Voting Rights Act area, where in 1999, in one of the Voting Rights Act cases, he said, just remember, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which required preclearance for every single change that a state or municipality might make in a voting, uh, regulation. Uh, had to be pre-cleared by the U.S. Justice Department, he said, just remember the huge federalism costs that that uh, exact. And then uh, a few years, it was finally ten years after, then in the Northwest Mud case, argued by my uh, former clerk and his, Greg Coleman, uh, the court gave a minimalist ruling and Thomas files a concurrence. Uh, saying that uh, we really should have ruled on whether Section 5 is constitutional at this point in time. That case was 2009 and then in Shelby County uh, just a few years after that, the court said well, and picked up most of the things that Justice Thomas had said in his concurrence in the Mud case and said well now we say that the coverage formula which is section 4 of the voting rights act is in fact unconstitutional section 5 is looming out there to be reinstated if congress uh, decides to apply preclearance say across the entire united states and then we'll see how how far the 5th amendment goes but he but he points out he his you know he wasn't making a full exposition about Section 5 in 1999, but six years later he was ready to do that. And and that argument is still out there because sadly, whatever you allow Congress to do, it probably will do someday. Uh, As far as the Commerce Clause dissent goes, that is a very important dissent just to remind us how far the powers of Congress have strayed from uh, what, what many of us, including Re- Richard Epstein and my, humbly myself, think was the original scope of the commerce power, um, but, uh, in the Turkle case, this, not Turkle, it was Turkle in my court, AAR case that seems to have resolved the, uh, eviction moratorium issue, um, this line is thrown off, you know, it's just a stay decision. So it's not a definitive decision. It was a five-to-four stay where the Supreme Court took up a D.C. court uh, ruling and said we're not going to dislodge the uh, decision of the district court to overturn the eviction moratorium. And they said, but of course Congress, you know, but of course Congress uh, could have imposed an eviction moratorium. And Just think about that in terms of the fact that the moratorium did not prevent landlords from collecting their rent, which would have been arguably a commercial aspect of the transaction. It prevented them from going to court because the essential terms of the real property lease had been terminated by the tenant's failure to pay rent, so it, it it was a very could be a very consequential imposition or, or expansion of the commerce clause, just like one might say. Not commenting on current other health measures that people <laughs> are proposing. Judge Hardiman, yeah, did just, you just one make one, one more follow point?
5: up consistent with what Judge Rouse said in a 2004 concurrence. Um, In a bribery, federal bribery case, Justice Thomas wrote that Title 18 USC 666A2 is is a valid exercise of Congress's power to regulate commerce, at least under this court's precedent. And then he said, I continue to doubt that we have correctly interpreted the Commerce Clause. But until this court reconsiders its precedence, and because neither party requests us to do so here, our prior case law controls the outcome of this case. So I think that's a great example of Justice Thomas's approach to judicial restraint. One of my pet peeves is when um, I, call it, I call it an opinion in search of a case Mm -hmm. Um, A pet peeve of mine is when judges have these opinions and they just want to write them because they have something important to say and they forget the case or controversy requirement. So I think it's telling here that Justice Thomas is saying the court has not agreed to reconsider precedents and the parties haven't fully briefed it. And I think that's a great way to go about judicial decision making is just decide what's in front of you.
3: That's actually a great segue to the cases Judge Pryor is going to talk about. Um, so, Judge Pryor is going to talk about the separation of powers, and there's two sets of cases here. Um, the first one, uh, or first two, might the justice might be accused of writing an opinion in search of a case, because uh, one of them was from just last term this US versus Senang Smith case, which was a very strange case where uh, basically an immigration advocate was prosecuted for illegally encouraging aliens sustain the country in violation of the immigration laws. Uh, the uh, in the trial court, I believe, the uh, defendant not claim that the law was void for va- uh, was void for vagueness. Right? Oh no, I'm sorry. Was overbroad. Overbroad. overbroad right? I to me, they always seem the same thing anyway. So You're closely related. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Closely related and both being unjustified by the Constitution, yes. So um, the Ninth Circuit here, uh, I, I don't know if there are any Ninth Circuit judges here today. They should be called upon to explain themselves, and this and many other items. Um, the Ninth Circuit uh, chose amicus to brief and argue this issue, which had not been raised by the parties. And so the Court 9-0 to zero, unanimously uh, sent the case back. But just as Thomas used the opportunity to write uh, an opinion about whether he thought overbreath doctrine was actually required by the Constitution. There's a second case Judge Pryor is uh, going to talk about called Johnson versus United States, which is an 8-to-1 case, Justice Scalia writing, which involved the Armed Career Criminal Act, which said if someone had been convicted of three quote-unquote violent felonies, they would be subject to enhanced sentencing. Uh, the, uh, the court said that violent felony was vague um, in fact in the facts of the case the defendant uh, the one of the felonies was just to have a shotgun short barreled shotgun in violation of the law. Justice Thomas used this case as an opportunity to discuss whether the void for vagueness doctrine had any
0: real roots in the Constitution. Yes. Yeah. so so um what's Most interested me in these cases is the difference in approach uh, to the structural constitution, uh, and particularly um, to the provision of the Constitution that has been the source of the greatest mischief in the history of constitutional law, uh, the guarantee of due process of law, beginning with Dred Scott. Uh, and the difference in the approach to those issues between Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, and yet you know, Justice Scalia was, off, was often um, described as the court's greatest defender of the structural Constitution, and that his, and it is often described as as the originalist justice whose whose, whose method was most uh you know best promoted judicial restraint and most concerned about judicial restraint and it, these cases I think the the justice who uh is is better described that way uh is justice thomas um so his his concern well I'll start with Johnson so the armed career criminal act had been and and its residual clause, this definition of of what is a violent felony, had come before the Supreme Court on three previous occasions, and on three previous occasions, the Supreme Court had applied it to crimes committed uh, by uh, offenders who were getting uh, longer sentences, uh, triggering uh, a, a, a lengthy mandatory minimum sentence, and... Uh, and, and on three occasions, the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of uh, of this statute. Uh, but Johnson comes along, and the, the court, because it, I guess, feels bedeviled by the continuing uh, problem of applying uh, this statute uh, to different kinds of of arguably violent crimes. This uh, Johnson was his crime that was uh, allegedly a violent felony triggering the mandatory minimum penalty was possession of a sawed-off shotgun. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, thought it easy to say that the mere possession of that weapon was not itself a violent felony, but he refused to go along with the courts and Justice Scalia's approach of declaring this statute that they had three times before upheld as void uh, for vagueness. Uh, He criticized the vagueness doctrine as uh, inconsistent with the structural constitution, uh, a disrespect of the legislative power, congressional power, to prohibit uh, certain conduct and um, and and an exercise in, in judicial power that goes beyond deciding the case before the court and declaring whether it is unconstitutional in all applications. So, so after Johnson, this this provision is in Supreme Court or popular terminology. Uh, essentially struck down right we so we often say the court strikes down a provision of federal law J- you know justice thomas takes issue with that courts don't strike down courts don't repeal Tor- courts don't remove provisions from the united states code courts decide cases and the case before us Is an easy one. The case before us is is one where this possession of this weapon is not a violent felony within the meaning of the act. Uh, But we have no occasion or no right to be saying anything about other cases that are not before us. He then does the same thing with the overbreadth doctrine in the Senator smith case uh, a few years later. He criticizes the overbreadth doctrine and and says, look at what we're doing in the name of due process. Instead of evaluating whether this individual's um, speech is protected by the First Amendment, we're asking whether this state law Uh, And so this has both horizontal and vertical um, structural restraint um, concerns for Justice Thomas. Both vagueness and overbreadth doctrines work with respect to both structural restraints. We're asking, well, when in a hypothetical case, this law might be applied to protected speech. Uh, And and we're not asking whether this individual uh, has a real injury here. We're asking... Uh, whether it, it it might be problematic in another context, and and we're again pretending that we have this this power that's what is essentially a legislative power um, to balance certain um, uh, costs and benefits and uh, to protect certain speech that's not the speech engaged in by the person who is uh, before us. Uh, so. So in a, in a real sense in this area, he, he's parting ways with Justice Scalia, but he, he, here is Justice Thomas, who's the defender of the limits of judicial power, the defender of restraint, and, uh, and the respecter of the structural constitution.
3: Great. So let me ask you, judge and other judges also, is there a consistency to uh, Justice Thomas in these, in these opinions about the attitude towards judicial power, yeah, I, I can't help but notice and um, right in the Commerce Clause cases he's calling for the court to be very active striking down lots of federal laws hundreds and hundreds they would be. In your example Judge Pryor he's actually claiming courts should step back and be more respectful of Congress and the way its laws you know impact um, free speech or or not or due process or not and then we're going to Talk in a few seconds about his clarion call to really get the uh, courts involved in overseeing the activities of the administrative state. Do, 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 is there a, a consistency in his approach to judicial, judicial power? Uh, is he a, is he, he a judicial activist? Can we say those words in Heritage, John? Is that allowed, or am I going to be removed now by security?
4: I think I think if I can. I think there is a consistency in the sense that if you look at his opinions in the Commerce Clause, uh, in matters like, um, uh, the interpret, you know, as I mentioned, the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Brady Act, Prince Case, the, um, uh, Supremacy Clause cases. Uh, He's very concerned about the structure of the Tenth Amendment, structural constitution as the bulwark of liberty. Federalism, separation of powers, all work together theoretically to protect the individual liberties of the people. And uh, part of the potential for abuse arises from Article 3 itself, stepping out outside of its bounds.
5: Yeah, I think that's very well said. That the consistent theme is is protecting the individual from the state, whether the state be the primarily the federal, the federal power. Um, so th- there's almost an interesting uh, tension there. I think, in the sense that he he certainly has a less capacious view of constitutional rights compared to some of his colleagues, but when he sees a right he's going to make sure it gets protected all the way and he's not going to compromise and i think the fact that he has written individually so many times is a great testament to his independence and and that is something we should all celebrate the fact that a judge is not um making sausage the way a legislator would he is he is expressing his view as clearly and politely as he can. You might agree with it, you might disagree with it, but you know that it's his view and it's it's uh, been
3: carefully thought through. Naomi do you want to go ahead uh since we're running out of time with the administrative law cases? We Uh, don't
1: have we don't have so much time. Um, So okay so maybe I will just talk a bit thematically about some of his more recent cases about the administrative state. you know Justice Thomas as has already been said is of course a committed uh, originalist he's committed to the original meaning he has been very focused throughout his career on the the text and structure of the constitution and how that text and structure protects individual liberty. So I think it's entirely in keeping with that that much of the focus in some of his his separate writings over the past 10 or 15 years has shifted to thinking about how the original meaning of the Constitution is at best in in serious tension um, with the Constitution. So um, I guess I'll I'll highlight a few things about that. So this is an area in which I think the Justice's views have been changing. Over time. So in 2005, Justice Thomas authored the opinion in a case called Brand X, um, which had a very deferential view to administrative agencies. Um, in that case, the court held, Justice Thomas held in his opinion, that um, a court must disregard its prior precedent um, that was interpreting an ambiguous statute in favor of an agency's later interpretation of that statute. Um, when I taught a class with Justice Thomas on the, the history and foundations of the administrative state a few years ago, he described his own opinion in Brand X as, as going to the edge of the abyss. And he said that was when he got there and he peered over into the void and he realized everything had gone too far. And and so we've seen, I think, since 2005, you know, him walking back from from an expansive view of deference to agencies, which is, of course, about uh, the judicial power. But... Maybe one of the things that connects his opinions about administrative matters is his real focus on the formal vesting of the three powers of government in three distinct branches with distinct characteristics. And and in each of these opinions, he has looked, he's really tried to give content to, you know, what is the legislative power? You know, what what is the core aspect of the legislative power or the executive power, the judicial power? And so we see that in cases in his decision, um, in the Association of American Railroads case, an Amtrak case, he elaborated on the non-delegation principle, which is of course all about Article 1, right, what is essential to the legislative power, why can that power not be delegated to and exercised by executive branch agencies, um, you know, I think you, that opinion is, is incredibly powerful. It was picked up by Justice Gorsuch in his opinion in Gundy, um, elaborating further on those themes of the non-delegation principle. He has talked about, um, the importance of the executive power in cases like CELA law, where, you know, should independent agencies, I mean, can, you know, to what extent are independent agencies consistent with the vesting of all executive power in the president? Uh, I mean, Justice Sama says it is not. Um, I've, I've certainly written um, extensively in agreement with that, with that view, but um, you know, there again, you see he's, he's talking about what does this vesting mean? You know, What is essential to the exercise of the executive power? And from his perspective, it means that the president must have the ability to direct and to supervise exercises of executive power, even by the so-called independent agencies. And then I think, you know, all of these cases are, of course, also in part about the judicial power. You know, to what extent can people challenge government um, government actions, agency actions? And, and in that vein, I think some of his recent standing decisions are are very interesting because he's he's rethinking some of the, the traditional car- ways of thinking about standing that, that Justice Scalia had elaborated in his opinion in Lujan. In the 90s, um, Justice Thomas has gone back to thinking about how the adjudication of private rights is really the essential aspect of what courts are doing when they decide cases and controversies and I think that is, that is a, that is a view that's still developing but I think it's, it's part of a piece with many of these reconsiderations of the administrative state. And so um, to the extent, you know, that that Justice Thomas is doing this, you know, it's not, each of his opinions, I think also very importantly, is not just about formalism for its own sake, but really about how the structure of the Constitution and the structure of the government serves to further individual liberty. And, um, you know, to the points about precedent, you know, I do think the, the, the discussions about his separate writings about the administrative state are ones in which he has really pushed for overturning precedent, precedent about the non-delegation principle, um, Humphrey's executor with regard to protections for independent agencies, and in that vein, I'll just, I'll just cite the justice himself, um, who was citing justice story in part, he says, again, in the Law, he says, we have a responsibility to examine without fear and revise without reluctance any hasty and crude decision rather than leaving the character of the law impaired and the beauty and harmony of the American constitutional system destroyed by the perpetuity of error. And so I think some of his most forward-leading decisions have really been in this context (coughs) of administrative law.
3: Great. So we have, um, uh, in the interest of time, we have about 15 minutes left. Um, I would uh, ask uh, questions from the audience. There's uh, people with microphones. If you raise your hand, uh, why don't you just uh, stand up, say your name, uh, make sure it's a question. Um, Please don't uh, engage on your own personal opinion, issuing your own personal opinions from the bench. Um, So anybody with questions? Right here. So my name is David. This question I think was probably best for uh, Judge Rao. It touches on the Article II Vesting Clause.
2: Uh, In Arthricks, Justice Thomas's dissent laments that the court relies on penumbras and emanations uh, of the Vesting Clause, of the Appointments Clause.
3: That seemed surprising to me given the other writings on the Vesting Clause and the Appointments Clause. Was it to you? Should I be surprised?
1: I'm surprised about... Oh, excuse me. Sorry.
3: To rely on the the criticism that the majority in Arthrex was using sort of penumbers, penumbras, and emanations, uh, sort of structural considerations, non clearly textual
2: considerations.
1: Well, I think um, I mean I think structural considerations are often rooted in the text, right? But but sometimes they can maybe maybe to some appearance can look like penumbras and emanations. But I think real. Structural constitutional law that's focused on the structure through the text is is not in that vein
3: Other questions Otherwise, I'm just gonna ask like 10 or 20 of them which yeah. you don't want to hear so please someone else, right here in the back here Yeah. Can you, can you stand up because we can't see you. Oh, there you oh. go
4: um, I'm Jan. Nice, Thank you. This is amazing.
3: Actually, no, we don't want any questions from you. Okay. You always get people in trouble when you ask
2: questions, Jan. No, no. Um, you know, just to kick this
4: off, this whole day off, I guess, you know, we've heard about Justice Thomas, and we know about his robust defense restraint, uh, the structural constitution. But I just want to know, like, your bottom line. When we talk about 30 years on the court, what is bottom line, what it means, what is Justice Thomas's
3: legacy? The elevator pitch, if you would.
4: (laughs) No, just to frame that, I think it's important because people have their own views of Justice Thomas and what is his impact, what's his legacy?
0: I I think he's been the essential ingredient um, to um, the case for originalism. You know, so five years ago, there was a… 25th anniversary celebration at Yale Law School that the Federal Society and the school um, sponsored um, on that occasion, and uh, my focus is on his criminal justice decisions. But and I've again focused on the difference between Justice Scalia's approach and Justice Thomas's approach. And and it, it's one thing to have one originalist justice who, who who says this is how I will approach the Constitution. But when you have a second <laughs> and and the se- then the advocates can no longer ignore it. When the court's closely divided, two justices is you know twice as important a- as one and 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 you know, I, you know, I look back at what one of Justice Scalia's most celebrated, perhaps best originalist opinion, uh, Crawford versus Washington. It was Justice Thomas, though, who, at a few years earlier, suggested that the court's approach to the confrontation clause needed to be needed to be rethought, uh, and and that's what led to the opportunity. <laughs> where it, that's that's what motivated counsel then to start making the arguments, to doing the historical research, and bringing the Crawford case before the court, and and. As the se- more senior justice, uh, Justice Scalia had the opportunity to write the um, th- the opinion, but it was because of uh, Justice Thomas's um, uh, separate writing that this was something that needed uh, to be rethought. And and in in many respects, when they would disagree about orig- originalism. Uh, one in the majority, one in the dissent, all the justices were, other justices were joining their opinions, but they were all arguing from an originalist uh, perspective. Uh, and so I would say his legacy is he, he's been the essential ingredient in really making originalism matter uh, in a way that no single justice could have.
4: Well, the only thing I'd say about that, uh, Bill, is that we've got at least four members of the current court who consider themselves originalists. And the uh, widespread view of the legal academia, many in politics, uh, the media, and so on, is to ignore them all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see what happens when you're a lawyer and you have a case in front of those four.
4: (laughs) Or, Or some on the lower courts who have been recently appointed. That's certainly true. I I characterize his um, importance in two ways, although it might be better to do this at the end of the day rather than now. But the first is, uh, as as some left-wing publication headlined a uh, retrospective on him about three or four years ago, they consider him the most dangerous judge in America because he dared to say things and open Pandora's box about arguments that have been Uh, sealed shut for decades and how dare, how dare a judge try to do that. And the worst was, he's influencing many young people nowadays. (laughs) So So I think what he has written has been a very powerful influence in that way. And second, in who he is, in the fact that he is very transparent about his background, the hardships he has faced, where he came from and so on, he is the living embodiment of the promise of liberty in America. And it, we have racialized so many things. Many of my law clerks are living embodiments of the promise of liberty in America, but because he is a black man, he is courageous, he is independent, they can't, you know, whatever they say about his jurisprudence, which is highly intellectual, they can't get away from that symbol. Well,
1: I don't know if I can improve on that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think if I, my elevator pitch is, I mean, Justice Thomas, his legacy is courageous fidelity to the Constitution wherever that may lead him.
5: I got nothing left. <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, Bill Bill and Edith summed up well, I think, the jurisprudential legacy. But Jan, I think, you know, let's face it. Um, most of America isn't interested in the things that we're interested in. And most of America doesn't read the things that we read. So I do think that his legacy... Uh, will be one of the most extraordinary Americans who ever lived because of the things that Edith and Naomi just said about who he is, where he came from. It is a consummate American story. And as I alluded to earlier, um, uh, we're all in trouble if uh, Big Brother is going to tell us what to think and what to say. And Justice Thomas's courage in the face of so much challenge and acrimony um, standing up for decades and just Writing what he thinks. I think again whether you agree with him or not uh, We should all respect that because that kind of honesty and transparency is something America uh, has been
3: founded on I'll just add if I could that um, just take a slight issue with your question, Jan, was that it's not the end of his judicial career. Yeah. So right. he's been on, you know, we're looking back at 30 years, but as you can see, uh, he has charted a, a very radical approach to being, uh, judging. It's surprising, actually, how far the court has moved in his direction over that 30 years. Um, if you're scared about influencing the youth and opening Pandora's box, what do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years when he might have a workable majority of originalists? That's... I think we're going to see the fruition of the last thirty years in the next ten, and it's going—I think—it's going to be really remarkable to see how it works out. Let's see what Chief Justice Roberts makes of it. Um, any more? Any questions on this side? Uh, we have one over here. Okay, great. And Mike Doherty. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Okay. Um, can you talk about, like, uh, well,
0: it, last time I got the big back. Sorry, uh, uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, especially since uh, the passing of Scalia and Chevron deference and and any leadership he's had to finally get that to turn over and have the court actually address something that's been kind of bubbling up.
3: Yeah. So what do you think about the future of Chevron deference now that uh, Justice Scalia, well, actually Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg were both its greatest fans and they've both left the court and you have younger justices who are willing to re-examine this. What do you think?
1: Saw me. <laughs> um, I'm sure you all have views about this, too. Um, you know, I think one of the you know, not all
0: of us are on the D.C. circuit. Yeah. Thing. We, we, not all of us actually have views on this.
1: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, you know, I think one of the, the interesting parts of what Justice Thomas has highlighted, which is that in some ways deference isn't the main problem, the main problem is delegation, so if Congress is going to continue to delegate to agencies incredibly broad authority, judges are always going to have to do something that looks like deference, whether we call it chevron deference or something else. Um, So I I think that if we move away from, um, you know, if the court starts to have more robust enforcement of the non-delegation principle, that I think will naturally lead to um, less deference to agencies, but until then, I think some of the labels may change, but I think it's unlikely, I mean, if agencies can exercise so much discretion under these broad grants of statutory authority, um, there's not much for courts to do other than something that looks like deference, unless the agency has really stepped out of its statutory authority. So, I think the core of the problem is delegation. Any
3: thoughts? No? Nope. As usual, the D.C. Circuit bores everybody else in the country to death. Oh,
0: <laughs> that is so oh, unfair. I clerked yeah. in the D.C. Circuit. so. Um, well, Na- Naomi makes it as interesting as it can be.
3: <laughs> uh, one last question. We have about five minutes, so I think we could, we have time to take one more question. Come on, this is your chance to ask questions of the judges rather than vice versa. There's a
1: question over here. Yes,
3: over here. Last question. Great. No, just don't talk. Ask a question. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. I'm just kidding. I would just ask that uh, what do you guys see some of, like, the issues that will be dealt with in these next 10 years? Like, uh, the next 10 years that you said is going to come to fruition, what do you think are going to be the questions that the court has to deal with?
4: Oh, point of point of privilege, we are judges or ladies and gentlemen, we are not guys. <laughs> and, well, I, and i I just say that because that is the one thing that I will call counsel out on in court every single time. You
0: know, I think keep in mind uh, to, to return to a theme uh, that I was mentioning with respect to Justice Thomas's jurisprudence on the due process clause. We, we don't set agendas. We, we, we decide cases or controversies. So the cases that are going to come before us, it, it, sure, we have a steady diet of particular kinds of cases, but a lot of it is dependent on controversies that we can't necessarily foresee. We don't know who's going to control Congress, what kinds of laws they're going to pass, and what kinds of arguments Uh, litigants are going to bring before us. Uh, And at the end of the day, our power really is a modest power. We're we're going to decide cases or controversies. And I don't know what the next 10 years brings. Uh, I don't think any of us really can. Uh, What I do know is that we've got more justices on the Supreme Court who share Justice Thomas's perspective that what really matters is the text and original meaning of the Constitution, and that's going to be a very exciting thing to see as unforeseeable cases or controversies come before us.
3: Let me sharpen your
0: question, because
3: I don't think this is going to be covered by the other panels, but one thing we can see coming down the road is big tech and social media. What do you guys think about the potential approaches that... <laughs> and in one minute, we have one minute left you're, in the panel, so... You
5: <laughs> really, you're, you're asking four judges to comment on matters that you're predicting will come before the court. <laughs> Right? Well, but that's we why know. You, that's why you and Richard are so great on that podcast, you know? <laughs> because no judge could
3: ever do.
1: What do, you think, what do, do you, that, you think about it, John?
3: <laughs> well, do we have time. No. Well, just the justice did issue this interesting opinion about how to what to consider big tech. Right? The, are they common carriers or not? I, I'm not asking you to say how you would rule. Just what did you think of his opinion about big tech? Still. No takers, huh? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Got
0: to be
3: kidding. (laughs) Jan, help me out. You're much better at this than I am. How do you get judges to talk about stuff they're not allowed to? You seem to be good at it. Quite
4: a lot today, John. (laughs) (laughs) We don't live in Silicon Valley.
3: (laughs) Okay, well, I can't think of a better way to end (laughs) than uh, seeing judges refuse to answer questions. So uh, please join me in uh, thanking the panelists and the Heritage Foundation